All right, everybody, good morning. Good to see you. Happy third week of Advent. We're going to go to get started. Can you stand to your feet as we begin? Let's stand to our feet as we begin this morning. As we've said over the past couple of weeks, we're going to jump around in the, in the catechism questions. And so I want our question, and we're going to go all the way to number 42 this morning. This is the question, and as that's on the screen, let's say the answer out loud together, and then we'll read a passage of Scripture together. The question is this, how is the word of God to be read and heard? And the answer say this, with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. And so as we hear this familiar passage, let us accept it with faith and store it in our hearts and practice it. And that word is from Luke chapter 1. One that we read many times this time of year, the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise. And as, as I read this, let's just remember this, that this same God that Mary describes, it's the same God that we sing to and that we seek and that we worship today. So starting in verse 46 in Luke chapter 1, it says this. It said, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Say this with me in verse 33 or 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. He has filled the hungry with good things. Let's worship the Lord today. Let's sing this old Christmas carol that just calls us to come and worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, King Jesus. Watching 
This week in Advent, we have, um, and this is every year around this time, we, as we get into week three, we have one candle that's a different color. And we say it's the pink candle. Technically, it's the rose candle, but the pink candle represents joy. The joy that Christ has come to bring to his people. So what I want to do right now is I want to invite Caleb and Taryn. They're going to come and read Isaiah 61 over us today as we see the, the joy that our Savior brings to us, and they're going to light the candle after that. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart, and they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them the recompense, and I will make them an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and the descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of, that, that they are offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the Lord brings forth his sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to be sprouted up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 
Would you pray with us as we continue? Jesus, we just want to rejoice in you today for what we just read, that you have clothed us with your garments of salvation, or that you have clothed us in robes of righteousness. Lord, this is the reason why we sing, why we worship you, because of your mighty things that you have done for us. That which we could never do in ourselves, but that you came down to us. Lord, and that you have shown your goodness, your mercy, your holiness, your might, everything that you are. Lord, so these next couple of moments, Lord, give us hearts of awe, of gratefulness, of thankfulness. Lord, increase the joy in our hearts. Lord, let this well up from within us. Now my soul magnet 
magnifies the Lord, I rejoice in the God who saves. I will trust His unfailing love. I will see His praises all my days. I will see His praises all my days. I will. I will see. Christ calling to us today. Oh God. 
wonderful truth, Jesus, that you are the offering. You are the offering. There's nothing we can do to add to that offering, to enhance that offering somehow. That this offering, this sacrifice is for yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, in the times that we want to rely upon our performance or what we have done or what we have not done. Lord, and that we want to look at that and somehow showcase that to the world or showcase that to you. Lord, remind us that everything has been, that it is finished, the work is done. Lord, and let that lead us to worship every day as we get up. Thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that as we said at the beginning that we would accept it, Lord, that we would rejoice in your word as we hear the, the end of Ruth today. Thank you for this word that has been passed down over thousands of years and that we have today. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Um, is it the younger ages, okay, ages four through six today. Ages four through six. morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. Just let me tell you quickly, we are, Lord willing, going to make our way through Ruth 3 and 4 today. 
uh, which is a ton of material, but it's because, if you haven't heard, next Sunday, we will not meet in this building. It's, it's Christmas Eve, but that's not why we're not meeting in this building, or at least not the whole reason. We meet on Christmas Eve, uh, but we're going to meet at Alpine with the saints at Alpine there, um, and uh, we're going to worship with them. We've, we've consolidated our Christmas Eve services into one, um, and John has asked me to preach uh, on love. Um, so I'm going to be preaching next week uh, to the saints of both bodies who are getting ready to become one. Uh, I'm going to be, uh, my plan is to preach from 1 John uh, chapter 4. So uh, because of that, we're going to try to get through Ruth 3 and 4. Uh, it may feel, as some have said before, a little bit like drinking water through a fire hydrant. Um, and I don't feel like when we're going to do that much material that we have the luxury of a neat, tidy, nice intro and conclusion. So we're just going to start reading Ruth chapter 3. Uh, I've titled this sermon... Uh, the same as the title of the series, which is Hope Renewed in Bethlehem. Uh, if you're interested in an outline, they're on the back table. If you need a Bible, they're on the back table. Uh, stand with me. Now that you've just sat down and got comfortable, stand with me and let's read Ruth chapter 3 and Ruth chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. 
She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word to us. Uh, be merciful to us as we spend our time in your word. Show us what you want us to see. Give us faithful, sound interpretation and accurate, relevant, helpful application. Uh, may we be changed by this word and may you be uh, glorified in the preaching and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
So I've divided, uh, I've divided this, these two chapters into basically three sections. Uh, they could absolutely be divided uh, further than that, but just for the sake of our time together, I'm going to try to take this in three major chunks. Uh, the first of which is, uh, is actually all of chapter 3, so verses 1 through 18. I'm calling this the request. Naomi wants to seek rest for Ruth, she says. She wants to provide for her what prospects she can, so she tells Ruth exactly what to do. Now, as I studied this week, commentaries were very helpful uh, in, in helping me to see that this was probably not the most ideal way for her to seek redemption for her daughter-in-law. Uh, we can't know for sure what exactly her motives were or, or why she thought this was what she should do. Uh, but perhaps, it's, it's thought perhaps, Naomi actually intended an intimate encounter for Ruth or at least was aware of the possibility of an intimate encounter happening at the threshing floor. Um, and so she was at least maybe aware that she might be jeopardizing her daughter-in-law's purity by sending her at night to a private place where a man was sleeping. Now, we don't know that, but there were probably other ways that this could have happened that didn't involve Ruth uh, exposing herself to some sort of physical danger by going by herself in the evening to the threshing floor to, the, to lay at the feet of a man who was sleeping, okay? Um, so in any event, whether the right or wrong course of action, what they are seeking is redemption. They want redemption from this relative who is a redeemer. Um, we're going we're gonna to dip back into this intimate encounter thing in just a minute. We're going to hopefully debunk some things in a moment. But um, what I want to do first is look into the Old Testament to see more about the concept of redemption. So um, go with me to a place we don't frequent, uh, and it's Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 25. We're going to read two significant portions of chapter 25 together. Uh, first, verses 25 through 34, and then verses 47 through 55. Okay, so Leviticus 25, verse 25, says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property." But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. 
As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel, but the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. Okay? Then skipping to verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated at the time as the time of a hired worker. Okay, so I'm I'm just going to pause there. So what's happening is uh, when God's people in Israel became poor, they had one of two options: they could sell their land. And, and get money for it to someone else in Israel. Uh, and, it, and in the Jubilee, in the 49th year, it would revert back to its original. So, so of the, the land and the fields, there was no uh, indefinite ownership. You, you were only ever uh, in possession of that for some 49 years or less. And then it would go back to the original owner. Um, that's one option. Or they could, the, one of their brothers could redeem it, which means the word redeem means to buy it back. He could buy the field back and restore it to the family. Or if the person who was poor becomes prosperous enough, he can buy it back. He can redeem it. And so he takes the year that he sold it, calculates the value from that year to the year that it would have reverted back, pays that difference, and then he takes the field back. The same thing could happen if you maybe didn't have a field or you had already sold your field or something like that, you could actually sell your labor. You would sell yourself into servitude. uh, And that's not the same thing necessarily as selling yourself into slavery, the way that we sometimes think about slavery, but you would essentially be a hired hand and you would make money. And if you became prosperous enough or you had a brother, they could buy you back out of that service. They could redeem you. And so you have a person being redeemed, bought back. You have land being redeemed, bought back. That's at the heart of this. So the Lexham Bible Dictionary cites those verses from Leviticus and explains exactly what I just explained to you, um, that, that they could sell their land or their service when they became poor, um, in order to make money uh, and, and not remain poor. And the, but there was, this, there was this person in their family, this close kin called a redeemer who had the right and the responsibility to buy back, uh, to buy them back, them or the land, by paying their debts. Um, at the, at, behind this also, uh, this, this story is um, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10 a concept that we sometimes refer to as leveret marriage. So if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 25, we've, we've looked at redemption, and now we're going to look at leveret marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Uh, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now that's not exactly the same thing that this man was doing in pulling his own sandal off as like a handshake. Um, but, but what's going on here is that God cares. Like God doesn't forsake his kindness, we learned last week, to the living or to the dead. So if a man marries a wife and he dies before he raises up offspring, that man's brother has the responsibility to take the, the widow as his wife and raise up uh, offspring in the name of his brother who died because God cares about a name. God cares about the names even of the dead. He doesn't want their names to be cut off. And so you have this, these, these two currents of redemption of land and people and of raising up offspring in the name of the one who died. Those are behind everything that's happening in the book of Ruth. And I just wanted you to have uh, that context as we think about what's going on in the pages of Ruth. So essentially, uh, we, we actually see from Boaz's words in chapter 4 that what they're asking of him is that he would redeem Ruth and the land that Naomi has, buy it back, and then take her as a wife, raise up offspring in Malon's name, in Elimelech's name, continue that line uh, so that that land stays in that family and those dead men's names are not cut off from Israel. That's what they're asking when they ask for redemption. Purchase the land, marry Ruth, and raise up an heir in Malon's name to whom the land can be passed and kept in the family. And so, again, whether it's right or wrong, Naomi comes up with a plan. Here's how we're going to do this. Uh, And Ruth listens to her mother. She says, all that you say, I will do, verse 5. She goes in quietly, uncovers his feet, and lies down at his feet. So there are a lot of people who want to read into the words uncovering his feet. They want to read into it some kind of innuendo or euphemism for something more than that, for an, an intimate encounter to indicate that there was, there was more going on here than just her lying down at his feet, if you will. Um, now, I think what's happening is that this is... This is a delicate position for her to put herself in. And I, I, I really do believe, so I don't think anything happened between Ruth and Boaz. But I think what's to be implied here is that at the hands of a lesser man, something might have happened there. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it, if, if Boaz had not been Boaz, the righteous by faith man who trusted in the Lord, if, 
if Boaz had not been who he is, that actually may have happened because she came privately to a place where he was sleeping in the middle of the night, uh, sort of off from everybody else. And, you know, you could fill in the blanks, right? Naomi at least had to know that that was a possibility when she sent her. And, and Ruth had to know she was kind of putting herself at his mercy. Um, and so what, what all this adds up to is, is actually um, showing the worth of the man, Boaz, just how worthy he was. He has no intention of taking advantage of this poor Moabite widow. As a matter of fact, he has every intention of disadvantaging himself for the advantage of this poor Moabite widow. Right, so that, that's, what he, uh, that's what we see of him. So I don't believe that anything is going on between Boaz and Ruth at this point. Um, you just think about how careful Boaz has been to protect her dignity and to keep her from being violated by the young men with whom she's working, right? Charging them not to rebuke her, not to touch her. Um, he's been careful to protect her dignity. He's, he praises her as a worthy woman. If you look at chapter three, verse 11, and he does all of this redemption business in public before the elders. So I cannot, I simply cannot imagine that this counter encounter would have included anything else. And you notice even the care in the narrative to say, and where did she lay all night? At his feet. She laid at his feet all night. And then you have this business at the end of this where, where she leaves before one can recognize another and he charges whoever, I guess, sees her, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor last night. Now, people would say, if, if nothing happened, why the need for all this secrecy? If they have nothing to hide, then why hide it? Because Boaz cares about Ruth's reputation and he doesn't want people to get the wrong idea about what happened. And therefore, he seeks to protect even her even from the whispers of people in Bethlehem. So he sends her away early in the morning. And one commentator points out that those six measures of barley may have been something close to 80 pounds of barley. So he was, his point was Ruth was not uh, a, a frail lady. Uh, she, was a, she was solid. She was able to carry 80 pounds into the city on her back. I think that his description of her as a worthy woman bears uh, mention, warrants mention. Uh, worthy is an important word. It's thematic in the book of Ruth. You have heard it written about Boaz, chapter 2, verse 1. We looked at this last week. There was a relative of Naomi, a worthy man from Bethlehem. He calls her a worthy woman, and then it's actually spoken later to him. We've read it already in chapter 4, verse 11, that, they, that he should act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Okay? This phrase that he uses to describe Ruth is also found elsewhere in the scriptures, notably in the book of Proverbs. It's found in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, and it's used to say an excellent wife. And guess where else that phrase occurs? Proverbs 31 Verse 10, 
an excellent wife. Okay? It's found in Proverbs. This, I believe this is saying Ruth was a Proverbs 31 woman before Proverbs 31. She was the original Proverbs 31 woman. So he calls her a worthy woman. He's called a worthy man. He also tells her that she's acted. uh, If you look at verse 10, you have made this last kindness. We saw that word kindness last week. It is chesed, God's steadfast love. That's that word that's behind that. He says that you've acted with Kesed, the faithful love often attributed to Yahweh. So last week, Boaz was reflecting the heart of Yahweh. And this week, Ruth is reflecting the heart of Yahweh as well. And so he responds faithfully. As one commentator notes, he responds without hesitation to her faithfulness. And he swears an oath to her. He will ensure that she is redeemed and she will not long remain in her current state. Okay? So that's what's happening in this request. The, she puts herself in peril. The peril wasn't real because Boaz is a worthy man. He calls her a worthy woman. And he vows that he is going to take care of her business. He is going to make sure that someone re- redeems her and buys this land from Naomi. That they do not remain destitute. That they do not remain afflicted but that they are blessed, okay? Um, And I love, I actually really love what Naomi says in verse 18. Let me read this. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Men, may our character prove so strong and worthy that the confidence that Naomi has in Boaz would be true of us as well. But right when there is some issue that needs to be settled on behalf of others, may we be trustworthy enough that someone would say, the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's be proactive about the needs of others. Men. Okay, so that's the request. We move into chapter four and we see the negotiation that happens in chapter four, verses one through 12. I'm just going to make four major statements about what Boaz does, and, and we'll, we'll dig into those a little bit. Um, so Boaz operates publicly and with integrity. Okay, so he gathers a crowd of people and elders together at the gate and negotiates in public. He has nothing to hide, so he hides nothing. That's the first thing that we see about his negotiation. The second thing is he goes about this business of redemption. He goes about it the right way, right? So he gives all the information and he doesn't leave out Ruth. This is not a bait and switch where he gets him to to remove his sandal as like the handshake or whatever that's happening and says, oh, by the way, let me just make sure you understand now that you've bought that field, you also have to raise up offspring for Malon uh, through Ruth. Now he wants to give full disclosure And he wants this potential redeemer to be well-informed as he makes his decision. Um, And he mentions Ruth because there's an obligation to perpetuate, literally to raise up or establish the name of the dead on his inheritance. Um, The first son that they have will essentially replace the dead males of Naomi's family as an heir of their family land. Uh, And so this actually may be why the redeemer balks 
uh, at redeeming Ruth and Naomi. Uh, it may be because she's a Moabite. Uh, those people did not have the best reputation in Israel. Or it may be that he understands the land that I'm purchasing is not going to be mine. That son is not really going to be mine, even though I will raise him. Uh, it's it's going to be, he's going to be Naomi's. He's going to be, he's going to belong to that family. Um, that may be why. Um, but he goes, but Boaz goes about it the right way. And then Boaz gets the girl, right? Isn't that what this is all about, right? Um, for reasons that are not made entirely clear, the Redeemer decides not to redeem, so he yields his right and obligation of redemption to Boaz. In other words, Boaz gets the girl. He once again makes sure everybody understands they've been witnesses to this transaction and that he intends to redeem both the field and Ruth and thus Naomi's family. Okay. Um, the commentaries that I read this week pointed out that, that they're really, for Boaz, there is actually, as the Redeemer, no obligation to do this because Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. And so what, what is happening here is actually that Boaz is not following the letter of the law so much as the spirit of the law, which is what people who reflect God's heart do. Right? This is what Boaz is doing. He is uh, he is going to redeem even this person, this stranger, this foreign woman um, who maybe had no business in, in like, like that family had no business in my life anyway, right? So Naomi, you made your bed. You just lie in it. Ruth, you're a Moabite. I have no responsibility as it relates to you. I am not your brother in any meaningful sense of that term as it's used in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And yet, Boaz decides, I'm going to do this Anyway, I'm going to take great cost upon myself, uh, the, perhaps the social cost of marrying a Moabite woman, um, the, social, uh, the, the, the cost of uh, buying this field and essentially donating it to this family, the cost of, of, t- uh, of raising a baby who will not actually end up being mine in my lineage. Um, I'm going to take that all on. I'm going to disadvantage myself for the advantage of others. Okay, and then we find out that Boaz and Ruth are blessed. Okay, so the townspeople agree about being witnesses and then pronounce a significant blessing upon Boaz and Ruth. Or better yet, they ask Yahweh to bless Boaz and Ruth. And they base this prayer, look, look what they say. Okay, if you're writing a blessing, a biblically-based blessing, from the stories of Scripture. Think about the stories that you would choose to use. Would you use the story of polygamy? And then the story, you remember Judah and Tamar from Genesis, I think it's Genesis 37, where Tamar is his daughter-in-law. And Judah promises that she can have his next son because these, the two, Judah's two sons, it, it, it's all, it's all kind of gross and weird. Uh, but, he, but both of them died. One refused to do the Deuteronomy 25 thing, right? And he died. And so Judah's like, this lady's cursed. So he promises to give his next son to her and then he doesn't. And so she 
knowing her father-in-law as she does, acts like a prostitute, and then she seduces Judah himself, so, his, so he conceives the daughter-in-law, and that is someone who is in the family lineage of Jesus. Right? If you're going to if you're going to pick biblical characters to use as a template for blessing, you're probably not picking Jacob and Leah and Rachel, the two sisters that he marries and has, and they have like this offspring competition with like the, the original mommy wars, right? Against each other. You're not picking that and you're definitely not picking Judah and Tamar. But here's, here's the reality of it. Those two stories are, are witnesses of God's sovereign ability to take, let's put it mildly, less than ideal circumstances, situations, and to build his people up through them, right? Here's Boaz and Ruth in a less than ideal scenario, and they're praying based on God's sovereign ability to do that then, that God would show up and do it now. And you know what? History teaches us the rest of the Old Testament narrative teaches us their blessing came true. It, it serves as much as a prophecy as a blessing, what they say. And so they bless Boaz and Ruth and they say, may, uh, may the Lord make this woman essentially to build up the house of Israel through her offspring as she comes into your house. And then we move into the last part of chapter uh, four, which is verses 13 through 22. And I'm calling that the redemption. Like this is when it becomes real. This is when it becomes final. We simply get to watch the happy ending unfold. Naomi has what the ladies around her say is a restorer of life. That's a phrase that's also used in Psalm chapter 23, verse three, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Exact same phrase. Restores my soul, my life. Restorer of life to you. Yahweh has not forsaken Naomi and he did not leave her without a redeemer. Her daughter-in-law, whom she tried to get rid of, became to her a source of great blessing, more indeed than seven sons would have been to her, uh, as did her kinsman redeemer Boaz through Yahweh's great, gracious, faithful, and steadfast love. So the Lord gives conception. We estimate that she might have been married for 10 years to Malon, never had a baby, and then, looks like first try, the Lord gives conception. The Lord is sovereign over life and death. The Lord opens and closes the womb as he sees fit. And all of this is to his glory. He gives her conception. And they call the boy's name Obed, which is related to the word for servant or slave. And it usually is used of a servant of the Lord, servant of Yahweh. Um, isn't it fitting that this worthy man and this worthy woman, they have a son named Servant? Verse 
they, they had the privilege of depicting the gospel in their circumstances, and they begot a servant. Um, and so we end the story with a genealogy. And, and what we come to see in this genealogy is that this story actually means a whole lot more than we might first have imagined it to mean. Indeed, uh, commentator Ian Duguid points out that this is not just a story of Yahweh's chesed, his steadfast love to Boaz and Ruth. It is that. Right? Like God is dealing at the personal level with Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. We cannot deny that. He absolutely is doing that. Um, and this story is not even so much about their love, Boaz and Ruth's love. It's not a love story between them and one and like each other, right? Like there's, there's is a union based much, 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 much more on character than it is on the feels that you feel when you feel love, right? Like it, it is based on worthiness and faith in Yahweh much more than it is on feelings, right? So it's not like a love story between Boaz and Ruth so much as it is a story of God's love for Boaz and Ruth. And it's not so much a story of God's love for Boaz and Ruth as you zoom back and it's a story of Yahweh's chesed toward his people, toward his, all of his people, right? Think about this. You read right here. This is in the time when the judges are still judging and we already see that God has provided the king that his people need. He, he loves, he took this, this terrible, sad, destitute circumstance of barrenness and he raised up from it King David. And it doesn't stop there because King David hears from Yahweh in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Yahweh tells him, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish your throne forever. And I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne forever. King David gives way to the Messiah. So he's not just providing a king that Israel needs. He's providing the savior the world needs through these circumstances in the book of Ruth. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to look at three kind of statements about the book of Ruth as a whole by way of kind of uh, closing down the study. I know it's only been three weeks, but we're going to close the study down by looking at these three statements. And, and two of these are actually one sentence that kind of completes, uh, one completes the other. Uh, so the book of Ruth is a picture of the gospel, Okay. Redemption itself is a picture of the gospel. Here is a foreigner and a widow with no prospects and no hope, totally at others' mercy. This man, Boaz, purchases her back from her ruin and destruction, brings her into his family, restores life and hope to her, and figuratively, right, that's important, figuratively raises the dead. The word that's used when he talks about raising up offspring in his name, like that's, that's, that's raising, it's establishing, raising up. So in, in raising up offspring for the dead son, he is actually kind of in a, in, a, in a way raising the dead. 
So this is such a clear Old Testament picture of what Jesus does for us. So much so, indeed, that the word for redemption, the word redemption, it actually becomes a synonym for salvation throughout the Bible. Sin has left us without prospects or hope, foreigners and aliens to the covenant of promise, sold in slavery under sin and without God in the world. But Christ paid the redemption price for us to purchase us back, to buy us back from slavery to sin. He raised our dead hearts, restores life and hope to us, brings us into his family and grants us a future, namely life with him forever. We don't deserve this, right? Just like Ruth, we had no bargaining chip with which to secure this blessing from God. It is all his initiative and grace, and thus it is all to his glory. Right? So the book of Ruth is a picture of the salvation of God in Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. The second thing is a picture of the gospel that actually helps accomplish the gospel. Right? So as we said, what we find out is that Obed is King David's grandfather, And King David receives a promise of a forever king to reign in a forever kingdom. This is uh, what one one hymn writer calls great David's greater son. Um, It's from David's lineage that the Christ was born. So this picture of the gospel actually helps advance the coming of the promised Messiah who would save the world. So in other words, the book of Ruth doesn't just point to Christ by picturing what Christ would do. It actually furthers the lineage that would bring Jesus into the world. So it's, it's not just depicting the gospel. It is doing that. But as it does that, it's bringing, it's helping to bring Christ into the world. It's furthering and advancing that. Uh, you look at Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 5 and 6, and that's exactly what you see. Right? This foreign Moabite widow is in the lineage. Some of the first words in the New Testament. Her name is among the first words in the New Testament. Look, verse five, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's one, right? And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. There is a place in Christ's family for sinners and strangers like you and me. Merry Christmas, that's good news, is it not? If Ruth, the Moabite widow, can end up in Christ's family, who couldn't if you will repent and believe? That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that Christ came, gave himself so that we could be brought into his family. We're going to talk about that more next week uh, when we talk about God's love for us that caused him to send the son. Um, And so I'll just leave that at that. Uh, The third thing is it's a foreshadowing of Christmas. Okay, This is is specific to where we are in the year right now. Um, But this is what happened. Hope was renewed for this family by the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. 
that happened in a miraculous way that demonstrated Yahweh's faithful love, abundant grace, and sovereign power. And it wouldn't be the last time that a baby born in Bethlehem renewed hope for God's people. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God, of his own sovereign choice and power, brought forth a son into the world in Bethlehem in miraculous fashion and renewed hope for his people all over the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so from that, not only is there room for strangers and sinners like us at Christ's table in his family, uh, it is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so uh, one of the things that I want to do is I want to spend a moment when we do our missions moment, I want to pray that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would this Christmas have this thrill of hope because of the baby in the manger in Bethlehem who became the king upon a cross who walked out of an empty grave, that that, that, that that thrill of hope would be theirs and that they would have a reason to sing to Christ this Christmas. Okay? So that is the book of Ruth. Again, I told you I don't have a conclusion either. So that's it. We're going to pray and then we're going to move directly into the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. Lord, I know that we have sped through and there's so much to savor in these words, and I just ask that we have gotten the most important bits of this story and that we have given honor and glory to Jesus, um, our Redeemer. I pray that when we sing these Christmas songs of our redemption, of our Redeemer, that it would hit differently because we've studied the concept of redemption. We've watched it take place in real time. Jesus, thank you that you are a restorer of life to us that you restore our souls, that you renew our lives. Thank you, Christ, that you uh, are the great redeemer who bought us back from slavery to sin so that we could join your family and have a forever inheritance with you. Let that, let the hope that we have infuse our celebration of Christmas Uh, and Advent as we look to the return of Christ, um, the day of redemption, final, ultimate redemption. Um, Christ, we need you here. It will be infinitely better when you are here. And so turn our hearts to want you to come back and then come back. In the meantime, let every tribe, tongue, and nation declare your praises. And we make this prayer through Christ. Amen. So we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord where he invites people who were sinners and who were strangers. He invites them in. He he welcomes them at his table. This is a sign of the new covenant that Christ made, that God made with his people through Christ. Um, the bread represents the body of Christ broken. Like we, we talked about Jesus paying the price of redemption to purchase us back from slavery. And this table shows you what that price was. It was his life.
it cost his life. He disadvantaged himself for the advantage of others, namely those who would repent of their sins and trust him. His body was broken instead of yours, and his blood was shed instead of yours. So if you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus who's repented of your sins and you've trusted and are trusting fully and only in his work, this table is for you. It's not for perfect people. None of us could come. It's for repentant people. So examine yourself and come to the table. If the Lord lays on your heart some way that you've walked in sin, Uh, sin against your neighbor, sin against a brother or sister, be made right, seek reconciliation, and then come to the table together as an expression of the unity that you have in Christ. Um, Examine yourself and so eat and drink. Um, If you don't know the Lord, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, If you're not willing, if you don't find yourself in a place right now today where you are willing to lay down every known sin, then don't come to the table. We don't want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself. We want you to take Jesus instead. We plead with you to take Jesus instead. If you want to pray with someone, I'll be down front. This is our invitation time that we set aside for self-examination and then for anyone who wants to Uh, be prayed for, who wants to receive any kind of counsel, that's that's this time. If if, If you want that, I'm here. I would love to point you to the Lord. Um, So as we gather at the Lord's table, we remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Father, have your way among your people. Bring us to deeper, truer repentance. Build us up in greater faith faith that rests exclusively in the work of Jesus in his living, dying, and rising. I pray that our observance of this table would be pleasing in your sight, would be fitting and appropriate, and would by no means be unworthy. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you keep us and guard us for the day of redemption. Please keep us faithful until that day. And let this moment be part of that. In Jesus' name, amen. The table's open.
dwells among the meek and lowly, that breathes new life in you. What kind of God descends the heavens to take a place among the orphans? What kind of judge secures a pardon by his very blood, by his very blood, only our God?
Once again, Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. Paul writes, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Would you spend a moment... Uh, praying for what I kind of close with. Pray for the nations that this Christmas uh, that, that people would experience the hope that was renewed in Bethlehem many years ago. Pray that right now. Father, I pray that your glory would be declared among the nations, your marvelous works among the peoples, that you would be feared above all gods, the gods that are worthless idols, the gods of the nations that are ineffectual and can do nothing. God, you made the heavens and splendor and majesty are before you, strength and beauty are in your sanctuary. So we pray that the families of the people, that the nations 
would exalt and would ascribe glory and strength, the glory that is due your name, that they would worship you in the splendor of holiness and that that all the earth would tremble before you, that among the nations it would be declared that Yahweh, the Lord, reigns, God, and that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would hear the good news of hope renewed through Christ and that they would have reason to sing at Christmas. And Lord, if you want to use us in those efforts, please do so according to your grace and according to your power. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just a handful of announcements. Uh, As a matter of fact, I actually only know of one announcement, and that is that next Sunday, December 24th, if you come here, the lights will be off and no one will be home. Uh, We're going to be at Alpine. Their service starts at 1030. So maybe you want to map quest it. Is map quest, is that even, is that a thing? I don't know. Map quest, nobody uses that. Google Maps it. Ask Siri how long it's going to take you to get there and try your best to be there uh, on time. Yes, print those directions out. Absolutely. Um, so I, my, my thoughts are also, or, or, I'm sorry, that's not my thoughts. This is what I think we've talked about. And I'll confirm that this week on the Facebook group uh, I think at 9.30, which is normally their Sunday school hour, they're actually planning to have a donut breakfast for anybody that wants to come. So if you don't want to cook breakfast and you're okay with pure sugar for breakfast, you should come at 9.30 and just, you can meet people from Alpine and they can meet you and you can talk uh, and then we'll move into service together. So you won't even be late for the service if you show up. You could be late for the breakfast and still make the service on time, no matter what MapQuest says. So, uh, 9.30 next Sunday, uh, and then at 10.30 will be the service there. Does anybody have any other announcement? Yes, you can still give to Lottie Moon, yes. Uh, yeah, and then put LMCO in the memo line, that's right, yep. You, you can still give to Lottie Moon. All right, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think we have anything down the pipe except that December 31st will be our last Sunday in this building. Um, so, y'all have a good day. Kevin had asked me to do the uh, closing here. He and his family had to, to leave. They went on a little trip. So we just have a scripture here to close us out with. Um, and it's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, starting with verse 16. And it says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from the evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then verse 28, 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You're dismissed. Thanks.